1: I'm Caleb Zachron, assisted editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Martin Dean, historian and researcher, about his new book, Investigating Babanyar, Shadows from the Valley of Death. Investigating Babanyar is built on research conducted by Martin into arguably the deadliest shooting massacre ever. On September 29th and 30th of 1941, Nazi soldiers and police battalions shot and killed more than 33,000 Jewish civilians in the Babanyar Ravine in Kiev. Due to the Nazi cover-up and Soviet Union's de-emphasis on the Jewish identity of the victims. Many details of the massacre have been buried over time. Martin and a team of researchers employing various methods from aerial photography to 3D modeling have reconstructed this horrific event. Martin, thank you for joining me today to discuss investigating Bob
0: Thanks, Keb. It's, uh, it's great to be with you and I look forward to discussing this.
1: You've done some really important work. It's obviously, reading it was was very difficult Um I think you you're you're talking about such a horrific event, but it's of course really important to remember these these events and and to reconstruct them so we know know exactly what happened. Um, but I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and and how you came to write this book.
0: So it was a long journey and actually all of my books are not books where I, I sat down like with my PhD and said i I just want to write a book about this topic. It sort of came to me uh, through different channels. And um, only once I'd done the research did I realize, oh, this is, this is the way I want to tell the story. This is how the book should be. So uh, it's it's kind of a, been a work in progress and it's and just, just started out as an investigation initially. Uh, my background is that I'm from the UK and I did a PhD in history at, at Queen's College, Cambridge. Uh, and then after that, I worked actually about 10 years as a war crimes investigator, both in uh, Australia with the Special Investigations Unit and as the uh, Senior Historian for the Metropolitan War Police uh, uh, war crimes unit in London and um, all those investigations were dealing with um, basically what we now call the Sherby bullets, um, mass shootings in the occupied Soviet Union by by Nazi, not only um, German units but also collaborationist units actually and uh, after that I did work for a while for the US Holocaust Memorial Museum and wrote uh, a couple of books there including one called Robbing the Jews that won a National Jewish Book Award and then in 2017, I was asked by Carol Beckhoff, the uh, chief historian of the Babyn Holocaust Memorial Center, uh, to um, join his team and uh, conduct some research at Babyn Actually, I hadn't really studied the topic very much before. I was—I I mean, I'd written about many other massacres, including a, a ghettos Encyclopedia. So I'm familiar with with more than a thousand sites of, uh, of mass shootings in in Eastern Europe. Uh, but this was the first time I really looked closely at Babyn and and. I was kind of struck that there were kind of large elements of the story that were not very well known or, or well explained. There was even uh, disputes among historians about where the massacre actually took place. And um, Carol suggested a new approach, which I really embraced, which was to combine... Uh, ground photographs, including quite a few new ones that had only been found in the 1990s or more recently, together with aerial photography and use sort of more modern geolocation techniques to try and find out um, more about what the topography was like at the time, how that influenced the mass- massacre and especially where certain key events took place. And uh, so we sort of broke the massacre up into little pieces. And uh, I did research on um, uh, little corners where, where important things took place, like um, there were pictures where uh, Jews were forced to undress. But we couldn't figure out exactly where this was. Eventually, we discovered that actually, uh, not on the maps, but um, from the aerial photography, there was a, a sand quarry right next to uh, what was probably the, the, the main site of the massacre. And uh, the more we compared the witness testimony, which there was actually quite a lot of, with these ground photographs and aerial photographs, the more we could sort of piece together the puzzle. But it, it literally broke down into sort of ten or fifteen different separate locations where key things happened, and then you can sort of see um that this was not just uh, mass shooting, but a, a very sort of carefully coordinated event where the, um, the victims were forced to uh, march along this specific route. Some were also taken by truck. Uh, but piecing it together was a, a real detective job that I, I kind of enjoyed the challenge of, despite the, the horrific nature of the substance.
1: Yeah, re- reading the introduction was interesting because, it, you know, you clearly did uh, work that you might not necessarily see a historian doing, it, it, not not the same type of just archival work that you usually find in historical work. Uh, you know, what was it like working uh, in these other disciplines, working, you know, doing aerial photography?
0: Yeah, that was a real challenge because it, it is kind of a technical thing, like a hangover from World War II. I actually worked with, with a colleague... Um, um when he got to him, M- who tried to use the same techniques that they used in world war ii even using sort of stereoscopic analysis in the NFM my my own eyesight was not able to do that so I, I kind of did it without the stereoscopic aspect but it was surprising to find out that there were all these uh, aerial photographs taken of babinyar that some of them actually quite close to the date massacre. We had one just before, and then the, the next most detailed ones were in 1943. But they also, by by accident, really caught a key event in the history of Babyn Yar. They they showed us where the um camp for the exhumation squad was based, and so uh, certainly without the aerial photography, uh, we wouldn't have been able to solve a lot of the, these puzzles. So that was definitely an important aspect of it, and also having uh, photographs that hadn't really been analyzed before was very important but it was still very difficult to work out where the photographs were taken and strangely there was like a, a lone tree on the skyline which I used as a reference point and I, I was lucky in some ways too that I had kind of a, a more professional team following up on my work and uh, we had two different um, uh, uh, experts in um, uh, kind of geolocation and uh, 3D models who then uh, used the same images, and and they could kind of confirm my uh, kind of uh, uh, unprofessional uh, estimation by by literally uh, kind of superimposing the various uh, images together to to, to create a, uh, like a, a 3D model of the whole area, and uh, and that definitely uh, corroborated kind of my initial interpretation.
1: So the the massacre occurred in late September of 1941. Can you discuss the the months, the lead up? to the massacre, what was the situation like in Kiev?
0: Yes, so um, not only in Kiev, but throughout the Eastern Front, the, the mass shooting of, of Jewish men, women, and children just evolved gradually, so that the Holocaust by bullets didn't start on June the 22nd. Uh, almost immediately, they, they were shooting uh, adult male Jews, and this was particularly done by the Einsatzgruppen, but by other units like the Buffness s uh, even some... Um, Uh, Collaborations units like the Ares Commando were involved. But then in the summer, especially first in Lithuania and then in other places, you see the expansion to, to ever larger numbers of Jews, and then it particularly took to women and children, uh, to which there was a, a little bit of resistance among the, the shooters themselves. So um, that was kind of introduced gradually. And then the, the first really large mass shooting, uh, particularly where these uh, units from um einsatzgruppe uh, C were involved, was at Kamenets Podolsk, um, so to the west of Kiev, about a month earlier. And then uh, some of the, the same uh, personnel were involved both there and in, in here, particularly uh, yakon was in charge of both those as the higher SS and police commander. And so you do see also an e- evolution in the, the tactics used, whereas initially they would uh, use more like a firing squad technique, certainly by... Um, Uh, August and September, they started to use what's sometimes called the sardine packing method, which is where you literally get the victims to lie down on on top of each other to try and get as many people into the mass grave as possible. And uh, these are fairly horrific details that they're not described uh, very much by the witnesses, of course, because so few people who actually got into the mass grave survived. But there were testimonies by one or two of the shooters as well, which, which helped us to kind of piece the whole story together. And that's another interesting part of the story is that um, especially the German trials in the 1960s, and early 1970s, you had there a lot of witnesses willing to say what happened because they were more or less felt safe that they were only going to be charging the the, the leaders in, sure, with any kind of war crimes. So some of the, the people low down the chain admitted to to their culpability and, and even described things. Although there was a lack of detail, mainly because most people were really just there for that one day, so they, they couldn't remember the sort of details I was looking for. So I relied on a few Accurate uh, memories of, of drivers and, and more to that the local witnesses to really help me best to piece together the topography.
1: So you know this uh, question I have just about what happened on September 29th and thirtieth of nineteen forty one. Uh, you know, could could you describe uh, obviously what we'll get into some of the details too, but you know just and, and you know this it, it is just horrific the the actual events and how they unfold. So uh you know, just uh, a fair warning to listeners. Uh, could, could you just tell a little bit about how the actual event took place, what we know about what occurred?
0: Right. Well, with the book, actually, I sort of circle around the, the main core of the event quite a bit and, and only have one or two chapters dealing with, with sort of the, the final actual shooting process. It's more about the 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 organization and, and partly also the the perception of of the victims how they they gradually realize themselves what, what's going on and, and all that is also sort of quite quite disturbing but but in some ways also gripping is as you kind of um gradually realize it yourself this is this is how it was organized um what happened very briefly is that the um german authorities put up uh posters using the the ukrainian police to some extent as well um to to uh asking all the Jews to report to a certain part of um, of Kiev to the west uh, close to the cemeteries but there was also a large freight railway station nearby so many of the Jews thought that they would be uh, just resettled somewhere else uh on, by rail and that was um also kind of encouraged by by the German authorities um and in the morning of the 29th um, literally uh, thousands of Jews did take to the streets, but others were uh, kind of hauled out of their homes by uh, German policemen mainly. Um, a few were transported by truck, or I think the majority did go on foot um, to the um, uh, uh, initial collection point. And what you see is um, there is kind of a, a, a point of no return where uh, none of the non-Jews uh, escorting the police um, uh, jews was supposed to go any further a few non-jews did go further and and even some of those were shot with the jews so it's good Shows sure um it, it was a risky thing even to accompany them um but the uh, the real way that the uh, jews were distinguished from the non-jews was by their documentation they had um, a jewish nationality in their passports and uh, uh, there was a point along the route where um these documents were examined and uh, we even have a photograph with, with kind of piles of documents on the ground another witness talks about the the passports actually being sort of burned in in front of people's eyes um, and so the, there were several stations like this on the way where specific things happened um we have other pictures of uh piles of, of property uh, along a, a narrow um, kind of avenue of trees and it's such an enormous uh site these these literally um uh, hundreds of meters of, of uh, initially just suitcases piled up, or in fact, a lot of them just had uh, kind of sacks that they they carried over their um, shoulders with, with basic belongings in them. And you can see on the the faces of the Jews as they're walking along. Sort of on the one hand, they're they're sort of very resolute and, and grim and determined. But on the other hand, you don't really get the impression that they they know that they're going to be killed. Um, so it, it's still kind of going on in an orderly fashion. Um, this gets more chaotic as it gets closer to the event. At some stage, uh, they do start to hear some shots in the distance. And, and some people who even left before the initial checkpoint say they either heard that from other people or could just uh, vaguely hear it themselves. And um, once they get towards the sand quarry where the um, undressing takes place, uh, the uh, policemen are forming a narrow corridor to sort of push people along, uh, keep them moving and using a lot of brutality and, and dogs to force them along. And the undressing phase is also particularly um, disturbing. It's described by a few of the surviving witnesses. Um, I won't talk about the the, the, the mashu itself anymore but uh, the topography was still very difficult to uh, recreate because the uh, ravine itself consists of a sort of network of of, of, of narrow channels and uh, there were at least two uh possible sites identified by historians uh, and a, a misleading uh thing was the uh Soviet Memorial which was uh, built in the 1970s which is quite a bit south of the actual uh events and uh, closer to the um, uh, Christian cemeteries there. Uh, Eventually uh, we could uh, definitely identify the the shooting site, mainly from the testimonies of the uh, exhumation prisoners, uh, but also from the photographs. There is one key photograph that that shows Soviet POWs filling in the gravesite and as to say, with the help of aerial photograph, photographs um, locating the quarry, and also using the uh, lone tree in the distance, I was able to to uh, confirm that beyond any reasonable doubt. There's, there's even a post-war um, uh, short film with a survivor pointing to exactly that spot as where the shooting took place. So,
1: uh, of the thirty-three thousand, who who were the primary victims? Obviously, most of them were, were Jewish. Uh, but can you tell me a little bit about uh, you know their their gender, their 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 age?
0: Right, so there there was quite a large evacuation of Jews from Kiev before the mass shooting. Uh, As many as 200,000 Jews were probably living there uh, in the summer of of 1941, although, of course, uh, the adult males of military age uh, were mostly conscripted just before or or during uh, the the initial invasion period. Uh, Others did manage to get out, um, uh, either because they were uh, relatives or particularly members of of key war industries that were evacuated, Um, one or two even... Uh, kind of volunteered uh, for, for either kind of trench digging or um uh, nursing services just before the germans arrived but as the germans got closer it became harder and harder for anyone to get out because suddenly kiev is in the middle of a, a huge pocket and and uh, even some of the, the soviet military can't escape from the the kind of german trap around them and there's actually not much fighting at all uh, in kiev when the germans initially arrive but within uh, the first uh, four or five days you then have massive explosions in some of the key um, buildings in the center of the city, which are actually uh, organized by the, the Soviet um, security forces. And this is really what the uh, the, the German security police uh, and the army together use as an excuse for what is their, their massive reprisal um, uh, shooting, uh, as many Jews as they can grab. So by well, this time, most of the victims are women and children and elderly men, but there, there were some um, men of younger age uh, who were mostly uh, POWs who'd been captured, or a few others who were uh, ordered to report initially to a, a POW camp in the south of the city, so near the railway station. And those men, some of them were actually shot the, the day before or, or or either during or, or after the main massacre, uh, but they were taken there by truck and, and, and may well have been shot in a, in a separate trench. Uh, slightly apart from the, the main massacre. Uh, it's disputed how many uh, Red Army soldiers were shot altogether at Babinyar. And that's really the the main um, uh, kind of unknown element in in estimating the total number shot. I, I see it as being a minimum of around fifty five to, to 60,000, uh, probably as many as 70,000. Most people see a, a kind of overall figure more like 100,000, but that's, that's based mainly on Soviet sources, which don't really explain who these these kind of extra people who, who um uh, weren't jewish were and it d- does depend a lot where they shot uh, i mean a lot of uh, red army soldiers were shot in and around kiev uh, but we don't have a uh, kind of evidence from, from many of them uh, escaping or even being taken to babinyar to be shot so although there is description of a, a large trench where as many as twenty thousand red army soldiers were killed um, I'm just not seeing some sort of other corroboration for exactly who that was, so it may well have been uh, quite a few less than that number.
1: When did the crimes committed in Babi first start to become clear? Like, uh, when when was the Soviet Union and the the rest of the Allies aware of what had ha- happened?
0: So, word does get out relatively quickly in places as far away as as Switzerland and other countries. I I didn't investigate this in in great detail. It has been done by by others before. But even in the German army, word was getting around not only that many uh, people had been shot, but even that the graves had been covered up using explosives just afterwards. So, I have a a chapter on that aspect of the the crime. And uh, there are uh, numerous different German accounts of sort of hearsay. People in Kiev, uh, they didn't actually go out to Babi but some and they told them that, that there was a big grave somewhere and uh, the, the sides had been blown up to cover it over. So uh, word did get around. The Allies uh, were obviously a little suspicious of this. The, the Soviets had more detailed knowledge because people came across the lines from Kiev, but almost uh, the whole population of Kiev was, was fairly aware that something dreadful had happened. And I also quoted a diary there that, that within two or three days, it was clear to most of the uh, population of Kiev that, uh, that the Jews of Kiev were no more.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about Paul Global, the man most responsible for the massacre?
0: He was the head of what's called Sonderkommando 4A, which was part of Einsatzgruppe C. Uh, he was a strict disciplinarian, and we get the reports already on the route towards Kiev that he uh, more or less forces all members of the commando to take part in in shootings Uh, uh, including uh, young Vafanis S-men who've arrived only quite late. Uh, They've all been uh, a part in some way of of mass shootings before they get to Kiev. And um, uh, he does have a drinking problem. So even he was to some extent affected by the, the awful job he was given. But he does stay... Uh, more or less, uh, with the security police. And later, he's also given the task of exhuming the corpses not only in Kiev, but really all over Eastern Europe. This is a a large part of the Holocaust that was was relatively neglected until recently. There's an excellent book by Andrew Angrek, which is about a 1,000 pages. I can reassure readers my book is only about 200 pages, so they didn't have to wade through quite so much detail. But he shows how uh, Holocaust sites uh, not only in Kiev, but in, in Minsk, in, in Riga, uh, all over Eastern Europe, particularly the large ones were exhumed, including uh, mass shootings or, or mass killings of prisoners of war, as well as of the Jews. And this was a major um, operation called um, Sonderkommando 1005, and it, it went right from the summer of 1943, more um, or less, to the end of the war. And it does make it much harder to... Um, estimate things like numbers in graves because they literally dug up all the bodies, burned them, ground them up and left very little um, for history to, to kind of uh, weigh up. But uh, ironically, often that process does leave other evidence. And so in, in being able to sort of confirm that that happened, we then also get uh, further corroboration of of kind of the the scale of the original crimes. And um, as I say, with, uh, Kiev, I was very lucky to get this aerial photograph, which shows the, the bunkers in which the prisoners were were based when they were taken from the Syriac camp to work on um, uh, the exhumation in 1943. Global uh, was eventually tried in Nuremberg in the Einsatzgruppen trial, which uh, the prosecution there was led by, by Ben Ferencz, uh, a young, young Jewish prosecutor. And um, he was also executed. And uh, I think if anyone deserved it, he was certainly a uh, uh given a fair trial and, and correctly executed.
1: Who were the survivors of the massacre? You have some some pretty harrowing descriptions in the book of people that survived.
0: I was also surprised that there were quite so many descriptions of survivors because I was aware of about sort of five or 10 when I started, but but definitely got to more than 20, I would say, by by the end. And it depends how you de- define survival. Some people were, were smart enough to turn back before they got to the first checkpoint and obviously more of those survived although uh, survival is kind of a relative term because um you didn't just have to survive babinjara in september 1941 you then also had to survive the whole nazi occupation and and the return of the soviets afterwards and and some people who even survived uh, the occupation would then be uh, conscripted into the red army and and, and uh, maybe die fighting in berlin so it's, it's it is um hard to measure the the, the, the total number of people who survived but um there were two main categories uh, a few managed to get uh, kind of out of the columns on the way to to, to Babinya, and one or two were even um could persuade guards that they were not jewish and and uh, were taken out by car uh, that was more the exception it certainly wasn't supposed to happen another group of non-jews were, were sent to uh to be shot and we know about that because one of them was actually uh half jewish and she did manage to escape from the mass grave and that that's the other main category. Quite a few people uh, did survive um, by crawling out of the mass grave, and this seems to be because of a, a slight change in procedure. As it was getting dark, they they did start shooting them from the very edge of the ravine, and this gave the opportunity for people to sort of jump in before the bullets hit them. And then those people were uh, some of them at least were able to crawl out and, and make it to safety uh, under cover of darkness. But but even then, they were still running the gauntlet of, of whatever guards were left around and and hoping to find some uh, local population that would help them
1: you mentioned a little bit about the um the cover-ups in the in the in the form of uh, the exhumations but can you talk a little bit about who was directing these cover-ups uh, and uh, why they were occurring what was the the objective here was it just to cover up in the tracks of the massacres um and, and you know how did how else did this take place?
0: What happened essentially is from a very early stage the Soviets started creating propaganda using the mass graves they uncovered in, in areas they, they reoccupied from the Germans. Uh, you see this actually in the war in Ukraine, where the where the Russians have been forced to retreat. You uncover mass graves, and that creates uh, a lot of um, uh, propaganda against the, the people who've obviously uh, created those mass graves. And so the Germans decided it was better to, to cover things up as best they could. And they um they did similar things even at the, the concentration camps uh, in Kiev, it was a, a combined unit, a, a small group of the security police, a, a special, another special commando, uh, led by Global, and also they had uh, order police uh, similar to the, the 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 units that carried out the uh, the massacre. Origin that was also a combined team of mainly. Um, a security police, order piece with some Waffen s uh, There weren't actually many uh, German army personnel involved in the massacre, but they did create the kind of the, the framework for it, um, uh, providing uh, supplies and blowing up the sides of the ravine, these kind of things. So the Wehrmacht was also culpable, although most of the work is done by the security police and the order piece. Similarly, with the the, the cover up, um, they used prisoners from the Sirets camp, which was a, a large um, work education camp that had both jewish and non-jewish prisoners um essentially uh people were being rounded up for for anything from suspected uh kind of spying or partisan activity uh, or being jewish or even refusing to work you could end up in this camp and uh, mostly jews were used for the exhumation exhumation squad and for about six weeks they they literally dug up and burned um certainly more than thirty thousand corpses um some estimates are quite a bit higher than that Uh, and um and they, they could tell that um, the work was coming to an end, even one of the guards tipped them off. So they managed to find um, the key to escape from their bunker or one of the bunkers uh, among the uh, property of the corpses. So this is an amazing story that you 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 look through literally dozens of keys that are found in, in, in some people's pockets or um, uh, on their person's. And uh, you try them out, and they, they did find one that worked on just before uh, they realized that they, that they would probably be shot themselves. And then they organized a mass escape um, in the middle of the night, um, uh, actually two years to the day after the massacre itself took place. And uh, th- this uh, escape of, of what I call uh, shadows from the valley of death. So the the German guards called them shadows um, because uh, essentially their, their death sentence had already been signed. But a few of them did manage to get out and tell the story.
1: <clears throat> How did the Soviet Union attempt to make Babanyar disappear as a site of Jewish mourning? Uh, and, and why did they do this?
0: Um, essentially, uh, the main reason was to do with the, the Soviet narrative of the war. Uh, They didn't want uh, Jews to have a special status as as kind of uh, the the chosen victims of the Nazis, but they they had the uh, ideology that all Soviet peoples uh, suffered equally in the war and um, initially they didn't want any sort of memorial there uh, so they d- decided to redevelop it i mean there were other reasons too they they needed more space for for housing and, and other buildings around kiev they decided to actually to put a, a major road uh through much of the ravine where even the shooting took place and it, it is a problem even today that we wanted to put memorial stones where some of the key photographs were taken and we, we managed to do that uh, for several of them but one of the most important photos in fact the one that's on the cover of the book you can't put a stone there because there's a building there at the moment uh, where people are living so it just kind of shows you that um, uh, the soviet redevelopment really bore no um, uh, uh, kind of awareness or took no account of the the history of the site and in fact they, when they did build a memorial uh, after a lot of pressure was put on uh, they didn't mention kind of the jewish nature of the victims and they placed it uh, quite a ways away about at least 500 meters from where uh, most of the events actually took place. And this carried on right up until the, the 1990s, even under Gorbachev, they, they were kind of reluctant to, to stress that uh, Jews were the main victims in Baben Yar.
1: So located in, in Kiev, Baben Yar is seeing war once again. What is the state of the, the site now and how has the ongoing war in the Ukraine impacted your work?
0: So the, the site itself, uh, I haven't been back there since the war started. I was last there uh, uh, on the 80th anniversary, which was uh, about six months before the war um, before the invasion took place. Uh, there was a, a, a missile fired at the television tower, um, very close to uh, both the old Soviet memorial and, and parts of the ravine. And um, uh, that did uh, result in, in five deaths. And there was damage to one of the buildings that was uh, intended to be part of the the planned memorial site, where, where one of the museum exhibits was to be. Um, and that's also quite close to the uh, Jewish cemetery administrative building that was also planned to be uh, renovated and, and become part of, the, of a series of, of different exhibits spread around the, the site. There, there was no real damage to uh, other memorials or uh, the ravine itself, um, but it is. Uh, just terrible how the war has impacted every part of Ukraine. There was a Holocaust memorial in Kharkiv where uh, literally a piece of the, the menorah uh, memorial itself was damaged. So uh, the war has affected everyone in Ukraine terribly. And the main impact has been on the memorial center itself, which uh, diverted its work almost entirely to humanitarian aid and, and uh, investigating war crimes. Uh, we are still trying to record as many survivors of the um, massacre in 1941 as possible, as well as, as helping to, to do similar kind of work on, on the current war. Um, but my position at the, the memorial uh, effectively ended with the start of the war. Uh, my contract was canceled because of um uh, a kind of military conflict, which has never happened to me before. It's it's a it's a, a shame, but I, I still decided to finish the book um, basically uh, on my own time because it was it was just important that the story is told and that the the book gets out in good time. Uh, my colleague Carol Berkoff is is also writing a book with with probably a similar aim, although I think his approach is bound to be different in several ways than mine. And um, there there are other books coming out. But I think this one gives you the most uh, detailed reconstruction of exactly what happened. And I, I tried to do it in a, a dispassionate way, uh, just so that um, we can understand what happened, that it didn't make sense, essentially.
1: What does Babin tell us about the nature of massacres, war crimes, and their memory?
0: So uh, There are uh, several lessons from Babin although I think in many ways it was uh, different from a lot of other, even mass shootings or um, uh, Holocaust events. And particularly shocking here was the fact that, that many of the victims had really no no expectation. Just the the suddenness of the the German uh, occupation of Kiev and, and the 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 kind of step towards massacres within the first ten days uh, was different from what happened in many other places where where people were confined together. Even in Riga, where they also shot thirty people, uh, sorry, thirty thousand uh, Jews within uh, ten days of each other in two shootings uh, in the uh, November. Or December of 1941, uh, there they had uh, experienced a lot of other tortures and events beforehand, such that, that there was no real um, expectation of something good coming from either the Latvian police or the or the the, the Nazis. So the the Jews were to some extent expecting what happened. But in Kiev, it, it was definitely a, a kind of a shock to the system. And the other uh, surprising lesson for me was there were also similarities. To the way that the uh, extermination centers like a Treblinka or Auschwitz, or even a a, a kind of non-permanent one like bornai Gora in, in belarus operated that you're kind of driving people into a narrow corridor uh, so that there's no escape and using quite a lot of brutality to make sure that it, it really it really works and um uh that that uh, uh, is quite shocking, but it sort of shows that the, the gradual evolution of, of, of murder, that the, the difference between mass shooting and gassing is, is perhaps not that great in some ways, as the end is very much the same.
1: So, with this book um, coming out, uh, is there any other project that you're working on? Other things that you're that you're investigating, either with Bob and Yara or 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 other subjects?
0: I still have um, some book publications uh, in the pipeline about my own war crimes investigations. Uh, There was actually a book uh, came out just uh, uh, last month about um, the the British war crimes investigations. And uh, there's almost kind of about... 40 entries to my name. I, I do feel I have to t- tell my own side of the story. That book kind of stresses the the unsatisfactory outcome and uh, in some ways blames the legal system for not being suited to these kind of war crimes. I, I think that's being a little unfair given the the legal position that, that we, we really couldn't go after uh, people without uh, eyewitness evidence and that, that made the job much harder. So to compare it with, say, uh, American investigations where more than 100 people uh, were denaturalized or, or um, uh deported is a little tricky because they have a very different legal system with uh different rules of evidence um and i am actually still very proud of that work i think we we did the best that we could um the one area where they they may have actually got it a bit right was that uh we certainly could have carried on the investigation a bit longer and and maybe uh, at least um knocked on a few more doors that 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 the numbers of of um, people who were in these local police units that came to the West was definitely much higher than, than people expected. And that was was one of my findings uh both really with all the war crimes units that I worked with, that often you would find that it wasn't just one or two, but in the case of the, the Mir police, uh, which was a just a small town in Belarus with with four or five thousand inhabitants, as many as as 40 members of that police unit came to the UK. Uh, which is kind of shocking to think <laughs> that uh, so many uh, from one small village is, is in in Britain how many came from other villages and there's definitely a good question
1: oh, that's that's certainly a great name well martin thank you so much for being guest on the the new books network the book is investigating bob and Yar, shadows from the valley of death thanks so much
0: thanks gabe it's been a great pleasure to talk to you